Father, we thank you for today, Lord. Thank you that you've woken us up this morning, got us out of bed, brought us here together to worship you, to glorify you, to thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for cleansing us. Thank you for seating us in heavenly places with Christ and for blessing us for all eternity in him. Lord, I lift up our brother Lenny, who I found out last night from uh, back in California. He's on hospice care, and uh, they're giving him a couple hours, maybe a couple days to live, Lord. And he was a great encouragement to me for many, many years. And so we lift up him, we lift up his family to you right now. Pray that your healing hand would be upon him, Lord, that he would be comforted, that he would be just looking to you, Lord, drawing near to you um, as he closely approaches your throne. I'm so thankful for him, thankful for his encouragement, Lord, and him pouring into me and many others for many years. So bless him, Lord, and bless his family. And uh, just be with us this morning, Lord, as we get into your word. Open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds. Teach us, Lord, your ways. Help us to love you more, to love our neighbor as ourselves, unite our church, and help us to be a light in this dark world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's message is From Alienation to Reconciliation. From Alienation to Reconciliation. And we're back in the book of Colossians. I figured if I did another message, then we'd never get back into the book. I would just keep giving messages that are on my heart and then Colossians would be far in the rearview mirror. And so we're back in. We're looking at verses 21 through 23 today, three verses. But just a quick recap, if I'm to recap the first 20 verses or so, I can do this with one word, Jesus. And that's par for the course for the Apostle Paul. 20 times, at least, maybe more, in 20 verses, Paul references Jesus Christ. That's all he can talk about. You read the book of Philippians, you read Ephesians, you read his letters. It's just Jesus Christ through and through. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. To go be with Jesus is very much better. I, if I'm in prison, it's for Christ. If I'm out of prison, it's for Christ. If I'm writing to you, Colossians, it's for Christ. Whatever I'm doing, it's for Jesus Christ. To glorify him. To make him known. And that's what we see here in Colossians chapter 1. And more than that, we see that Paul is demolishing vain philosophies, empty deceptions, traditions of men, Gnosticism, angel cults, or anything else infiltrating this New Testament church or raising itself up against the knowledge of God. Paul's going to present Christ. This is who Christ is. This is the truth of Christ. You want to throw all these errors at Jesus Christ, he's going to crush them every time. And so Paul lays out the theology of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And even today, we still see some of these false philosophies and traditions of men in different ways and different thought processes. I think it was just a couple weeks ago, Pastor Joe and Chad did an expose on the Gnostic Barbie movie, which I haven't seen, won't see, and probably, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen it, but Gnosticism in one form or the other is still alive and well today. And so that just shows you the relevancy of the scripture that here Paul's writing to this church countering Gnosticism and these false traditions and many of them in one form or another still exist in our day today 2,000 years later. So scripture is alive. It pierces the heart and it's just relevant to our day. It's amazing. So Paul establishes in chapter 1, Jesus is king, Jesus is creator. He's the eternal one. He's the head of the church. He conquered death. He made peace through the blood of his cross. He reconciled all things to himself. And then he concludes in verse 18, and he says, he has first place in everything. He's the supreme one. He has preeminence. And I was thinking this phrase, I did a whole teaching on that phrase, the first place in everything. And I was thinking, back to my life, I've played sports for many years. Any sport you can think of, I enjoy playing. Though golf, I always shank the ball and it would just go into the, I, or I would miss. Go figure. I play baseball, uh, decent at hitting the baseball, but I swing and miss at a golf ball for some reason, or I just shank it every time. But So I stay away from golf. I let the other brothers here enjoy that sport. But thinking back to the sports that I played over the years, I think I got first place maybe once 
and this was like 25 years ago or so. See me youth baseball, Angels, Bronco, Victor Sua. I think we got first place. Um, and then they traded me a couple years later in Pony, and uh, that was a whole nother story. But um, I got a lot of second place trophies, a lot of third place, fourth place, fifth place in high school. I think in college we might have got first. Eric, I don't know. Did we get first at Moorpark? Okay, so I couldn't remember or not, so I figured Eric would know. Playing college, and that's because Eric was on the team, so we got some help there. But I got a lot of second, third, fourth, fifth, not a lot of first. Jesus, Paul, proclaims he gets first place in everything. Isn't that awesome that you know the Savior? He's reconciled you to himself. We get first place, so to speak, in him. We're, we're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to judge angels. We're going to, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. We have so much in Christ, we can forget it if we don't talk about him, if we don't remember him, if we don't worship him, glorify him the way that we should. So he's the king of kings. That's obvious. He's the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all things. And so as Paul's going through this dissertation on who Jesus is, I'm sure the Colossian church is reading this saying, amen, amen, as we say as well. And then you get to verse 21, and he, he then turns the teaching, if you will, to the second person plural pronoun, you. He, this whole treatise is in him, in Christ, in him, in him, in him. And now he's about to, he's about to turn some emphasis back onto to you, Colossians, and to us today. So let's, let's go ahead and read what he has in store for us today in these three verses, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless, and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he's saying Jesus is great. He's glorious. He's awesome. Now verse 21. Now let's talk about you now. As you're saying amen, Colossians, as we're saying amen, let's talk about you. You were alienated from Christ. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. It's not the prettiest picture of us B.C., before Christ. Um, and if we read that as we did pretty quickly, you kind of miss what Paul is doing here. There's some redundancy going on in verses 21, 22, and 23, and I'll, I'll call it the repetition of threes. In each verse, there's at least three things that he seems to repeat. So verse 21, he's saying, B.C., before Christ, you were alienated, which is estranged or separated from Christ. You were hostile in mind, and you were engaged in evil deeds. And then in verse 22, he says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And then here's three more things. In order to present you before him holy and blameless, and beyond reproach. And then you get to verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, and then here's three more things. Firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And so I believe that Paul is belaboring three points that I want to look at today in these three verses. And point number one, this is who you were before Christ. That's point number one, verse 21. This is who you were before Christ. Point number two, this is who you are in Christ. And then point number three, this is who you are to be, and this is what you are to do if Christ is to remain in you. So pretty simple points, three points, three verses. That's my goal for today, to walk through this. So verse 21, this is who you were before Christ, alienated hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And that Greek word for alienated is apolotrio. It means estranged, excluded, shut out. You are outside of fellowship. You are outside of the promises of God and the fulfillment 
of the church and Christ in God. And so Ephesians 2.12, this same Greek word is used. This Greek word is used three times, alienated, in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.12, Paul says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then there's Ephesians 4.18. He says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So outside of fellowship, outside of the joy and peace in Christ. It's a pretty bleak, grim picture. No hope, separation, darkened, ignorant, hard-hearted. Not a great picture for those who aren't in Jesus Christ. And perhaps some of us can relate to that, that picture of what it means to be outside of Christ. Year after year, as I would go to the men's retreat in the Sequoia Mountains, I think Leah's going next month, actually. The women caught on after the men went for 20, 30 years. Back at Blessed Hope See Me, and now they're going to go every year probably. But we'd hear men give testimonies. Two or three men every year would give testimonies, and they would share. And I remember growing up listening to some of these testimonies of wow, I never knew that about that guy, or he did this or that, and they're telling us these really dark things that happen in their past. And it's like, okay, at times you're like, okay, get to the cross, like get to the gospel. Like, wh- wh- who are you now in Christ? Start talking about that, you know, because some of us have had some pretty dark past, and we can talk for quite a while on the hostility of mind, the alienation, the evil deeds. Look at all of this. I mean, if Paul was to share his testimony and go through all the details of who he was before Jesus Christ, he could probably talk for many hours about his evil deeds. And so Paul here in verse 21 is saying, Colossians, you're, you're not good. No, y- you, you're pretty evil. You're alienated and hostile on mind from Christ. Understand that. I was watching a trailer of a documentary on Netflix. A friend sent me, I guess, this new Tim Tebow documentary, or I guess it's the Florida Gators in the swamp or something like that. An old friend back in California said, you're going to enjoy this. I'm sure you're getting your popcorn ready for this. Uh, He knows I'm a Tim Tebow fan and enjoyed watching him play football, even though his career was short-lived and all of that in the NFL. But there was a Johnny Manziel documentary, and one part of the trailer stood out to me, and it was this quote. He said, when I got everything that I wanted, I think I was the most empty I have ever felt inside. He signed an $8 million contract with the Cleveland Browns. He was the Heisman Trophy winner in 2012, the most decorated and awarded figure in college sports. He's like an icon and a hero and an idol to some people. He's And the trailer's short, but it talked about how he would just party and before the games, he would just stay up all night and party. And he confesses, I, w- I, I had it all. And I, that's when I was the most empty. And I know Pastor Joe's compiled a lot of these quotes from Tom Brady and different rock bands and different celebrities. And over and over and over, you hear that. These people that are far from Christ, yet they have money, they have fame, they have accolades, and they say, I am so empty, Shia LaBeouf. I have this God-shaped hole in my heart, in my chest. I don't know what it is. Tom Brady, I've won three Super Bowl rings. There's got to be more than this. There has to be something else. Why do I feel so empty? J.D. Rockefeller, uh, what, what? if you want to be happy, what do you need? He goes, one more dollar. One more dollar. He's already a billionaire. I need one more dollar. I just need more money. I need more fame. I, you're chasing after the wind. It's never enough. And that's what I see Paul saying here as someone who is alienated from Christ. It's never enough. You're without hope. You're ignorant. You're darkened. And you're caught up in foolish things, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So what is this word hostile in mind? It's ekthros. In the NIV, it translates it, and in the King James, enemies in your mind. You were hostile in your mind. You were an enemy in your mind. You hated God and his ways and his law and his commandments. This word describes a person who is resolved to inflict harm, someone who's driven 
by irreconcilable deep-rooted enmity. And it's actually a Greek word that's used of Satan in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, and Matthew 13, 39. So you were alienated. You were like Satan in your mind. You were evil in your mind like the evil one. That's pretty dark. And then the third thing that we see here, he says you were engaged in evil deeds. You partook in evil deeds, and the Greek word here is poneron. And again, this Greek word is used of the devil as well in Matthew 13, 19, Matthew 13, 18, and also in 1 John 5, 19. It says, we know that we are of God, but the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, the poneron. So Paul's saying you're not, you weren't good. Just, just a quick reminder here. Colossians and just a quick reminder to any Christian who's reading this no before Christ you weren't morally neutral you weren't good you were pursuing the things of this world your fleshly desires you were darkened alienated evil in your mind and you partook in evil deeds you were the bottom of the barrel you were the scum of the earth so to speak and that's why we say from the uttermost to the guttermost right that's who Jesus seeks after those who are darkened in their ways for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And so last night, I, in my curiosity, I typed in three words on the Google search engine. This is what I do when I'm curious about certain things. And these were the three words, are people good? Just type those words in and hit, hit enter. Are people good? First article that popped up, a CNN article, it actually said title, Breaking News. People are inherently good and nonviolent. It's no surprise that a CNN article would say that, but let me just share some of that with you. Part of the article states, quote, When we hear about bad things happening, especially when lives of many are lost or damaged at the hands of a few, we need to remind ourselves that people are generally good. We are hardwired for goodness. It goes Contrary to verse 21, contrary to the scripture, of course. So how does the article respond with all the evil in the world, all the destruction and child trafficking and all the wickedness and abortion and all these things, some of which the person in the article, they don't even call, they can't use the word sin or evil or many things that we know are evil. They would say, oh, that's not even that bad, but here's their solution to the violence and hatred and destruction and wars in the world. The article goes on to state, quote, the more governments and individuals do to reduce the conditions that cause the darkness in which violence breeds, wars, poverty, systematic racism, xenophobia, homophobia, religious intolerance, and bullying, the fewer acts of horror on the news we will have to process. You see, so when you get governments involved and when you get individuals involved to to put away xenophobia homophobia or bullying or poverty then people won't be in an environment where they can be evil see if you give people enough money or if you give them a nice house or if you put them in a good environment this is what the article i believe is trying to say then everyone will just be good because intrinsically we are good and so when you're put in a bad environment when someone's bullying you or you don't have money or someone's attacking you for your religion or your ethnicity or that's when evil, that's when darkness comes as a response. It's not inherent to who you are. Well, of course, that's not what the scripture teaches. That's not the truth. And we know that Jesus talked about in Matthew 15, 19. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, etc., etc. It all comes from the heart. It comes from within. That's why we need a new heart. We need a redeemed heart. We need, to, we need to be transformed. We need to be new creations in Christ. That's the anecdote. That's the reconciliation that we need, that the world needs if we're to see true peace. And that's ultimately not going to come until Jesus returns and makes all things right. But just to further this argument, look at the apostles. Look at the early Christians. What kind of environment did they live in? What kind of environment did the apostle Paul live in? Look at his environment of 
of being whipped and beaten and stoned and left for dead and mocked and ridiculed and thrown into prison and dangers in rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen. Wherever I go, conflicts without fears within. How did he respond? Did he respond with evil? Did he respond with hate? According to this article, he's, he's a prime example of someone who was placed in that kind of environment. But no, instead he responded with love. Why? Because he was following his master, Jesus Christ, who was placed in the worst environment possible, marred more than any man, crucified for our sins, and he responded by sacrificing his life for others. And that's what we're to do as well, whether, it's, whether it be poverty, whether we're getting persecuted for our faith. No, we respond differently because we have a changed heart. We have a new mind in Christ. We have a new heart. We've been redeemed. We're new creations in him. So no, government isn't the answer. Individuals getting together and just trying a little harder and going out and doing pep rallies together isn't the answer. We need Jesus Christ. So it's a faulty premise. It's a faulty diagnosis, and it's a faulty solution. And that's what we would expect from someone who doesn't know the word of God and doesn't know Christ. Ignorance and darkness showing forth in this article. It's interesting. I was trying to reread some of the article this morning, and it wouldn't allow me access. It's as if somehow they knew I was putting together a message against them. I don't know. That was kind of bizarre. But nevertheless, listen to Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Alienation from Christ is a heart that's void of love, a heart that's void of joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so what's left to fill that heart but the flesh, the raging flesh, a hostile minds, and therefore evil deeds are produced. So, That's the bad news. That's the bad picture. Let's get to the good news. Verse 22. This is point number two. This is who you now are in Christ. It's not really good news unless you understand the bad news, right? That's why many people, I don't think, fully understand the gospel and the good news. Because it's like, well, I'm pretty good. I'll I'll just, you know, put Jesus on top of my goodness. You know, I'm already, compared to most people, I'm already good. And so how is this really good news? I'm already doing well in life, and, you know, I do good deeds, and I help others, so surely God already loves me and is going to save me. Okay, I'll just, Jesus will now be my sidekick, and that's what a lot of people think. But that's obviously not what the Scripture teaches. Paul presents the bad news to now introduce and bring us back to the good news, and that's why he uses this word yet, verse 22, or some of your translations say, now it's an emphatic response to the previous verse yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach when i thought of this transition i thought of second samuel chapter 9 verse 4 there's this figure there mephibosheth perhaps you've heard of him he's from the city lodabar which means pastureless land wasteland land of nothingness He's Saul's grandson. And David, King David in 2 Samuel chapter 9 says, is there anyone left from Jonathan's household that I may show kindness to? Here was David just bonded to Jonathan, Saul's son. Saul tried to kill David many times. You know the history there. And so Saul has now died in battle. Jonathan has now died in battle. David has peace all around him. And he says, who can I show kindness to? because of that great bond that I had with Jonathan and some of the promises, if you will, that I made to him that I would bless his family. Here's Mephibosheth. So David calls in Ziba, who's his servant, and says, is there anyone? And he says, yeah, there's Mephibosheth. He's out there in Lodabar. He's in the wasteland. He's crippled in both feet. There is, there's that guy over there. And David says, yeah, bring him, bring him to me. I want him to feast at my table. I want him to sit in the king's court. I want him to have the most precious of the things that I partake in. I want him to be here. And so he brings him in, and Mephibosheth says, what do you want to do with me? I'm I'm but a dead dog. I'm but your servant. 
I don't even deserve to be in your presence. You're going to ask me to come sit at your table and feast with you every single day? And that's a picture of us. That's why the text says several times in 2 Samuel 9, he was crippled in both feet. He was crippled in both feet. It's a reminder. We're crippled without Christ. We're in Lodabar. We're in the wasteland. And he has reconciled us to himself and said, feast from my table. David says in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Many of the graces that David experienced in his own life, he poured over into other people's lives. Just as he was out shepherding the field, overlooked when he was anointed by Samuel. Here's Mephibosheth, overlooked. Thought is nothing to the world. That's us, nothing. Yet we're seated in heavenly places with Christ and get to experience joy forever in him. So we have been reconciled in his fleshly body. Paul's combating, of course, some form of Gnosticism there or some heretical teaching that's saying Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. So not only does he say he came in the body and died, he came in the fleshly body. Do you see the redundancy there? I think there was a guy on Joe Rogan podcast recently that Joe and Chad also exposed this guy who's saying, we don't even know if Jesus existed and if he did exist, he could have been some sort of spiritual being. Um, then he was referencing this book where Jesus is like some sort of hallucinogenic mushroom. I, it's, o- it's bizarre. Like, I, I couldn't even believe it as I was listening to some of these things. Not only do they say Jesus didn't exist, he was some sort of mushroom, a hallucinogenic mushroom. And this is what Joe Rogan in part believes because if you – this is the most listened to podcast in our country if not the world millions and millions of people and if you see the introduction he has these apes with mushrooms on the on the ground in some sort of garden and pastor joe was mentioning how he believes in this um quick form of evolution if you will i don't know all the argument that false teaching he believes but it's that that these monkeys or gorillas partook of the hallucinogenic mushrooms and then they, bec- they they became enlightened and they had all this knowledge and then they quickly became humans and here we are today and so d- and jesus is some sort of hallucinogenic mushroom and when you partake of that mushroom now you have this amazing knowledge it's so far-fetched and i uh, i can't even articulate it properly because it's so confuddled and just stupid i guess you could say but that's what some people believe and so paul is dealing with things similar and he goes he d- he, he he died for us And then he mentions his fleshly body. And then in verse 20, he mentions his blood. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, In him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So Jesus came in the flesh, and he reconciled us. And what was his purpose in reconciling us, according to verse 22? And there's many purposes in which the Lord reconciled us. And you can say he reconciled us to save us from our sins and to save us from hell and to save us from the power of Satan in our lives and to bless us for all eternity. But according to verse 22, Paul says he's reconciled you in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I think one of the reasons he focuses on these things, um, specifically with this church and several of the letters he writes even to Ephesus and others, he's really hammering on holiness because they're in these pagan cultures. They've come out of these really dark cultures of paganism and idol worship and prostitution and all these dark things. And he goes, that's that's not you any longer. You've been called to a new life in Christ, to be holy, to be unblemished, to be beyond reproach. He's reconciled you to that. Yes, we want to talk about he's forgiven us of our sins and he's going to bless us for all eternity. And he's he's saved you from the power of Satan and being enslaved to him. But you need to focus on holiness to be blameless, to be beyond reproach. Scripture teaches that Jesus was blameless. He was spotless. Hebrews 7.26 says he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. 1 Peter 1.19 states that Jesus Christ was unblemished and spotless. It uses the same language used here. So when we're reconciled to Christ and we put on Christ, we are now 
holy. We are now blameless. We are now beyond reproach. Colossians 3, 4 says Christ is our life. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 says he is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our holiness. Romans 13, 14 says put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. I was looking up articles this morning on the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, these men who have been told to put on the jersey that has the pride flag, LGBTQ, uh, several hockey players. I think it was a goalie for the Sharks. Um, five Rays and MLB players were said, you need to put on this jersey. It's got, we're going to have LGBTQ night. It's got a rainbow flag. They said, we're not doing that. I think NBA, it's all over, right? Praise God, men are standing up and they're saying, we're not doing that. We're not wearing that. And I, I just thought of that that's a bit of analogy to our faith. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put on an old jersey. Don't put on the things of the world, the defilement of the world. No, you're in Christ now. You're on a new team, so to speak. You're in him. So when the world and its defilements and the, the things of this world, the darkness of this world, are trying to cloud who you are in him, no, you need to put on Christ. You need to live for him. And so, praise God, people are standing up, but how much more just in our faith overall, do we need to live holy lives for Christ? We've been reconciled to be different from the world, to be set apart, to be more like Jesus, to be pure, holy, undefiled, full of his love, beyond reproach. And this word beyond reproach, Greek word is aneglektos. It means unaccused. It means someone that's scrutinized, logically scrutinized, yet not convictable. If someone was to watch our lives, can we say we're beyond reproach? If you guys were to come over to my house and watch how I treat my children and discipline my kids and speak to my wife and am I yelling, am I screaming the whole time, am I getting angry at everyone or whatever sin it may be, you if I'm held up to scrutiny, am I above reproach? And this is actually a qualification for a deacon in Titus 1.6. It's a qualification for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 or 1 Timothy 3.10 for a deacon, Titus 1.6 for an elder. And so this is a standard that we are to pursue as Christians, to be beyond reproach. As it's been said, If is there enough evidence in the court of law to convict you as a Christian, right? If people that we know, people in our lives, people at work, if we were to question them, would they say, yeah, oh, there that person is undoubtedly a Christian. I, 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 I see the way he talks. I see his walk. I see how he lives. He's different from us. We, we go out and party. He doesn't. We, we talk all this kind of slang and all these dirty jokes, whatever. We, he, he doesn't talk like that. There should be a, a separation. Yes, Paul says, I become all things to all men so that I may save, save some of them. To a Jew, I became like a Jew. To those under the law, I became under the law, though not under the law myself. I become all things to all men so that I might save some. So we, we, we rub shoulders with the world trying to save them, and at times we want to look like them in a sense to win them over. But when looking like them is tempting us to sin or causing us to sin or has an appearance that's not of Christ, now we're crossing the line. So we need to pray for wisdom on how to reach people but not even get near that line of sin and of temptation. Use wisdom in those areas. Peter puts it this way, 2 Peter 3.14, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. You need to be diligent. If you want to be spotless and blameless, if you want to be holy, you're going to have to be diligent. Holiness isn't going to come just by sitting on our butts at home. It's going to take work. It's going to take work through the power of the Holy Spirit in us to memorize his word, to meditate on his word, to be fervent in prayer, to seek him, to get into fellowship, to beat down our bodies, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, beat down our bodies, make it our slaves, so after preaching to others, we won't be disqualified. There, there, there's a killing of sin involved in this. This is a battle that we're in. We're saved, the scripture says, but it also says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So from a place of salvation, from a place of victory, we fight, we battle, and we work out our salvation. 
John says it this way, 1 John 3, 3, all those who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And then James 4, chapter 8, this is, this is a heavy one. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He'd get kicked out of a lot of churches today, preaching like that. That would last not very long at many supposed Christian churches. And that's what I love about the biblical writers. They just say it how it is, right? They don't pull any punches. Cleanse your, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you, you double-minded. Purify your hearts. There's a lot of laxical, lackadaisical Christians, if you will. And I'm constantly trying to find this balance of resting in Christ and just relishing in my salvation and what he's done for me and giving him thanks and and also working, working out my salvation in him and, and fighting the good fight of faith and beating down my body and purifying myself and being diligent. And so you see both in Scripture. And we don't just want to preach one and you don't just want to preach another to where it's just like you're worn out, you're beat down, and I'm so diligent I'm just giving up and throwing in the towel, right? We need to allow all of the Scripture to speak. So Christ didn't reconcile us to live the same way we used to live, to put on the old jersey, so to speak. We have a new jersey, and it's to put on Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, to be blameless in him, to be above reproach in him, and that takes striving. That takes, as I mentioned, beating down our bodies, our fleshly bodies. I was looking uh, yesterday at my son Leland and as he was watching this show, Outdoor Boys. Maybe you've heard of it. It's got a couple million probably subscribers on YouTube. This guy just goes around the world fishing and hiking and doing all sorts of fun stuff. And I walked into the room. He was watching it and it kind of caught my eye. So I ended up standing there for like 10, 15 minutes and ended up watching it with him. And he's like, I got to go eat dinner. And I'm like, well, keep this on because I want to see it. And he's hiking in the in Alaska in the mountains and it's snowing all over him and he's hiking and hiking and hiking he's like I'm moving like one mile an hour right now because the snow is so deep and he's like he's just trudging along and he's like I'm trying to get to a point over there on the other side of the mountain and I think I went the wrong way and so he seems to be lost and the sun's going down and uh, so he chugs along for a couple more miles and then he goes okay I'm going to set up camp here and so he just starts digging out some snow. The snow's probably a couple feet high, and he digs it out, and he puts some sort of tent over it, and he gets all this stuff out of a bag, and he puts on, like, three layers over his feet and o all these different kinds of pants on and jackets, and he's heating this water up, and he's eating these MREs or whatever you call them, little mac and cheese thing, and he's, like, got the camera on. He's like, I'm freezing right now. It must be, like, zero degrees, and, and I'm, I don't know how I'm going to make it through the night, and I'm so cold, and I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. And long story short, short, not all the details in between, he gets up the next morning and he chugs like another 15 miles, I think it was, makes it to the destination where he needs to go. His friend picks him up and he's in the truck eating Lay's potato chips saying, I made it out of there. Uh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Sign up next week for the next show or whatever. And I'm like, this guy just went through a lot, man. Like he's sitting there shivering inside this little snow barricade, zero degrees, chugging 18 miles in the snow for YouTube, I guess, for clicks, for people to watch and for fun. And I'm just like, people do these things. I'm always reminded, like, people do these things for the world and for money or for views on YouTube. And it's like we go to lift a foot for Jesus, and it's like, oh, man, I'm sacrificing so much for him. You asked me to walk a mile for you, Jesus. Man, I, I really did a sacrificial deed for him today and yet people in the world are just going so much further than Christians they're going across the world for YouTube doing all these amazing things and it's like I preached a sermon today Lord thank you that I did such an amazing work and it's like I just I don't know I don't know if that makes sense but Lord help us to strive after the kingdom to do more for him through his power through his strength through the Holy Spirit in us I think it's Luke 17, 10. Jesus said, after all that you've done, just say, I'm an unworthy slave. I've only done that which I have ought to have done. And so he's our master. We do as he says. If he tells us to 
go chug 18 miles in the snow, we should do it with joy. Do it gladly because he gave everything for us. He saved us. He's going to bless us for all eternity. So may we be obedient to him. May we pursue holiness to be blameless and beyond reproach. This is what Matthew Henry says of verse 22. He says, if God's love is so great to us, what shall we do now for God? He says, be frequent in prayer and abound in holy duties and live no more to yourselves but to Christ. Christ died for us, but wherefore? That we should still live in sin? No, but that we should die to sin and live henceforth not to ourselves but to him. So he loves us, he saved us, he reconciled us to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. And here's number three. This is now who you are to be and what you are to do to remain in Christ. That's found in verse 23. There's a big word in verse 23. It's if. He says, if you indeed continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Perhaps it's one of the most important words in this text, the condition of if. I'm constantly telling my kids if. Dad, we want to go to the skate park later today. I said, okay, if you're good, if you're good. It's a big if, son, if you're good. Daddy, can we have a popsicle? If you go run on the treadmill for 30 minutes, you can have a popsicle. What about this snack over here? It's loaded with sugar. If you do 50 push-ups, you can have that snack. That's kind of how it works in our house. Sugar's the enemy. So you want sugar, you got to work for it. You're either doing push-ups, squats, you're running on the treadmill, you're going in the backyard and playing soccer. You want to go out and hang out in the front yard or go to the skate park? If. If you're good. If you're not good, you're not going to the skate park. If you don't do 50 push-ups, you're not getting that snack. If you don't run on the treadmill, you're not getting a popsicle. Paul's saying if you don't continue in the faith, verse 22 isn't for you. Some people say, I don't like that. I want verse 22. I don't want verse 23. I don't want Christ, and I don't want all the hardships that come with him. I just want all the promises. I want all the blessings. I want all the comfort. I want all the peace and joy. I don't want to walk the Calvary road. Paul says, no, if you continue in the faith, firmly, steadfast, established, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. It's not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in our works. It's not faith in how good we do. It's faith in him and what he's done for us. That's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works. It's saying I'm keeping the faith. I'm in Christ. I'm saved. His promises are mine. And we can say that with confidence if we're trusting in Christ. And if we look at our lives, as Paul says, Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Do you not know that Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Now, he's speaking to those who are not bearing much fruit. He's speaking to some in the Corinthian church who, if they examine their life, there's just, there's nothing there. There's nothing but division and slander and just fleshly deeds. And he goes, if, if you take the test and you look at your life and that's what you, you see, don't think you're getting the promises. Don't think that you're saved. There's no evidence there. Every good tree bears good fruit. Some trees bear lots of fruit. I've seen some lemon trees. There's like hundreds and hundreds of lemons. I've seen some apple trees in my neighborhood. There's one apple on it. There's some fruit there. The, the tree's still alive, barely. Paul's saying, if that's you, praise God, you're, you're in Christ. He'll say, you're a babe in Christ. You're on the milk. Get on the meat. Like Feed this tree the nutrients it needs to grow. But hey, at least there's some fruit. But if you go out and look at a tree and there's no fruit and it's wilted over and it's like that happened to me recently trying to water this plant on the side yard and I messed up, I guess. I don't know what I did wrong, but that thing just wilted over. It was done. It was like nothing left. Did the examination, no fruit, dead. Darn, try better next time. More sun, more water, fish guts. I don't know what it needs. I, I heard fish guts works really well. I know it sounds weird, but so examine yourself. See if you're in the faith right? And if you're bearing fruit for the Lord and you're trusting in him, then you have that confidence. You can boldly go to the throne and you can rest assured you're saved. I want to give you five quick cross-references highlighting this important word, if. Romans eleven twenty two. Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. 
1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, by which also you stand, which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Hebrews 3.14 We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And Hebrews 10.38 But my righteous one shall live by faith, but if he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Some will say, do you believe in eternal security? Perseverance of the saints. Do you believe that saints are secure in Christ? And I would say, yes, if you are in Christ, you are secure, right? If you're trusting in him, you are secure, you're safe, you're sealed. No one can snatch you out of his hand. He's given you his Holy Spirit. So we don't have to worry every day like, am I in the faith? Am I out of the faith? You know, I got to persevere till the end. What, what if I fall away later? No, if you're trusting in Christ today, he will keep you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to keep you till the end. He who started the work will be faithful to complete it. If you're in Christ, he will keep you. But if you say, no, I'm jumping ship. I'm going back to the world. I'm going to sear my conscience. I'm going to willfully live in sin. I'm going to deny Christ. And scripture says, if you deny Christ, he'll deny you. Second Timothy 2.12, Matthew 10. 33, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father and the angels. So if we shrink back, if we harden our hearts, if we sear our conscience, if we fall away, there's no promises in Scripture for us. There's no promises that he'll welcome us into his presence and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I thought of an analogy of this, and I hope it's biblical, from Genesis chapter 6, when God tells Noah, build an ark, Take your family on the ark, your wife and your sons and their wives. Take them on the ark. And so Noah is obedient. Noah is seen to be the only righteous man on the earth. So Noah does this, and his wife and his sons and their wife enter the ark. Everything's going well. The animals come on board. God shuts the door. Now during the storm and during God raining down his wrath on the world, what if Noah at times he's walking to feed the animals and he's busy for the Lord and he's doing his work and he's obedient what if he unintentionally slips on the ark is he like oh man I've lost it that's it no he just gets back up right and continues to do the work of the Lord but if Noah says I'm going to jump ship I don't trust God anymore I'm going to go see how I can swim out there I see some people they're swimming it looks like they're surviving I don't know what that looked like if everyone just died hard on impact of all the water or I <laughs> imagine like people on boogie boards or surviving for a while like, hey, Noah, look over here. We're having fun. And it's like, okay, they're all going to perish in time. But if you jump ship, you are no longer saved. And in Hebrews 12, it says Noah brought salvation to him and his family through faith and through obedience to the Lord. Now, the ark is a picture of Christ. And so if we are in Christ, if we are on the ark, we can have confidence. We can say, praise God, this ark's going to safe land. Jesus will bring us home. We're in him. And as we're following him and we're on this crazy ride called life, if we unintentionally slip up and fail, if I yelled at my kids and there was sinful anger there, then I say, Lord, forgive me. And now I move on. I'm in Christ. But if I yell at my kids and I the Holy Spirit rebukes me and I say, no, I don't care. I'm going to keep yelling at my kids and I'm going to keep being angry with my family and I'm going to keep living in this sin and that sin and I'm no longer going to go to church and I reject Christ. I've jumped ship. I've apostatized. Or as Paul says, you've shipwrecked your faith. There's no promises for you any longer. So as I get ready to bring this to a close, I'm reminded of my friend at the rescue mission where I used to work. One of the things he would say to me often is steadfast, brother. You don't usually hear a lot of Christians say that, but he'd say shalom and steadfast. He actually texted me last night and then again this morning. He's constantly sending me Bible verses and encouraging me. And so as I was reading verse 23 where it says to be steadfast, I thought of him, to be immovable. 
the other night, Leah and I and the kids were doing a little devotional in the living room, reading Psalms chapter, Psalm chapter 16, and we were trying to memorize verse 8. So I'd say it out loud, and then Leland and Leah would repeat it. She memorized it in like 15 seconds. She has a really good memory. Leland and I kept trying to memorize it for a little while after. This is the verse. I have set, here's my test, see if I remember it. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. It's a great verse, not too long. Because God is at my right hand, because the Lord is continually with me, I will not be shaken. And so I told Leland, I said, if there's a big boulder outside, a huge rock, and these crazy storms that come through star with the wind and the, and this, the lightning and, and it's just pouring rain, I said, what's going to happen to this boulder out there? What's going to happen to this huge rock that's sitting there? And I kind of ask surface-level questions at times, kind of rhetorical questions. And he's like, I, nothing, I guess, right? I, it's just sitting there, a rock. And I'm like, Exactly. Jesus is the rock. When he's before you, when you're building your life upon him, when the storms of life come, you won't be moved. That's what the psalmist is trying to say here in Psalm 16. I said, what will happen to a little pebble that's out in the front yard when it's super windy and the rain's crashing down and it's a storm? And he said, I don't know. And I'm like, I was trying to make the point. A little pebble can be moved and swayed and it's going to go all over the place. Perhaps it's going to get caught up in the gutter and go into the, down the road, into the sewer, wherever. Build your life on the rock. Make sure you're living for Christ. And when the tribulations and the storms come of life, you're secure. You're steadfast. You're immovable. I close with a song that perhaps you've heard. It goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Not earth nor hell my soul can move. I rest upon unchanging love. I trust his righteous character, his counsel promise and his power when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may i then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne we were alienated then we were reconciled to live a holy blameless life above reproach so now may we be steadfast and immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing his toil in him is not in vain